This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Tom Cliff, a Discovery Early Career Research Fellow at the Australian National University, about his book, Oil and Water, Being Han in Xinjiang, which was published in 2016 by University of Chicago Press. Now, Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region is a part of the modern People's Republic of China with a very storied history and a profoundly troubled present, one that thankfully is now attracting greater attention from concerned parties around the world. But Tom Cliff's Oil and Water, being Han in Xinjiang, shows us an aspect of this region that has been little explored in depth, namely the lives of the local Han Chinese population there. Based on many years of residence in Kaula, a major town in southern Xinjiang, and a production centre for the region's oil industry, Cliff draws us close to the thoughts, dreams, beliefs, aspirations and legends of his interlocutors, answering in rich ethnographic detail a question he says he's been posing himself since 2001, namely, what is it like to be a Han person living in Xinjiang? Given the fullness of his perspective and the diversity of his subjects, the answers Cliff offers are inevitably multiple, varied and shifting. Indeed, in offering us this kind of anthropology anthropology of experience of Han settlers from the past seven or so decades of settlement, Cliff deliberately avoids full closure on certain subjects, and particularly through very compelling use of photographs, and they really are beautiful images, very striking images, I should say allows readers scope for interpreting many of the frontier situations he discusses. However, despite portraying this rich picture of everyday life there, he doesn't shirk some pretty forceful and hard-hitting conclusions about situations and a broader regional situation, which without doubt is often dark and devastating in its effects, particularly when it comes to imagining any alternative vision for Xinjiang to one completely subsumed by centre-bound settler colonialism. By showing us the very human ways in which China's Xinjiang frontier operates on an individual and local level, Cliff makes an inestimable contribution to what should for all of us be a region of increasingly pressing concern. But to discuss this and the book as a whole, I'll now say Tom Cliff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Ed. It's a pleasure. Yeah, well, it's great to have you here, and uh, I enjoyed reading the book. It's a tremendously uh, rich and, and uh, fascinating portrayal of a side of life, which, as I say, is not widely covered in the region. Um, but perhaps I could begin by asking you something about yourself and your academic background, your personal background, and how it was that you came to focus on China and Xinjiang, uh, how you, your, about your formation as, a, as a, both an academic and, I suppose, a, a, an, an ecological being. Yeah, um, thanks a lot. I I sort of began life as a photographer. So I was traveling through Southeast Asia in the early 90s and somebody who I met said to me, you have to go to China. You can't ignore China if you're a social documentary photographer. And so I, I went there, even though I didn't really want to. I, I thought that, you know, there's way, way too many Chinese people and um, I don't speak the language anyway. And 
um, you know, the people don't, Chinese people don't like don't like uh, other outsiders. You know, this is my image of China before I went there, and then I got to Hong Kong and it was t- I was tired and I thought, okay, I'm going to go straight through the most populated part to the western part where there's more space and I'll be able to bear bear that more easily. And really, I was on the way to India because that was sort of my my destination. I thought, you know. The, the end result, I want to go walking there. So mm. I went through to um, to Lanzhou and, and around there. And at that point, I made the decision that instead of feeling under siege like I had done for the last two weeks, I'm going to feel like these people are welcoming me. And then that everything changed. And suddenly, I felt welcomed. Um, it was just this sort of cognitive shift that was required in my head to to um, actually be be open to it. And I went to Xinjiang and studied, uh, you know, travelled around there for five or six weeks and uh, had some amazing experiences with both the police harassing me and um, people like retired army generals adopting me and, and taking me to places I couldn't otherwise easily get. Um, so, uh, the very extreme sort of feeling. I also took photographs that I, I I was really stimulated by that environment. So I was photographing and took photographs which I still like. Um, I left tired um, and not planning to go back, but but within three years I was longing to go back. So I went back, and that's where I started to think about the Han people living in Xinjiang. And thinking these are people, these are not like the Han people in in the East. Even though I had very little experience with the Han people in the East, I had a feeling they're not the same. And this was sort of prompted, I guess, by my own experience of being a settler, you know, being born in Australia, but coming coming back to Australia um, when I was six years old and going to live in in a place which I was unfamiliar with, and so I felt like there was a sort of uh, a similarity between me and them. Mm. Where, um, where had you come back from at that at that young age then? What were you well, sure we, we, I went back to England when I was uh, two and a half. Mm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and so I, I, I then I then I started to think about the Han uh, in Xinjiang, and, and um, I, I realised that what I was reading in the academic literature was always focusing on the Uyghurs, um, at, at least contemporary. There's some very good stuff done historically, but um, then I went there, I decided to go there and, and continue to take photographs in 2001. That was my mm-hmm. objective. I went to go there, get a job, take photographs and uh, learn the language because I didn't want to take photographs without understanding something about the place and I thought the language was important in order to do that. So that's where it sort of started basically. That's where I that posed that question that you um, posed in the introduction there. I see, I see. And and then uh, how did that then mesh with your subsequent academic pursuits and, and how did you bring that into a kind of uh, university context? Well, then I went to Beijing and worked for CCTV for a while. and, and But at the same time, I was applying for a master's. I came back here, did a master's, not intending to be an academic, and then did a PhD, started the PhD, not intending to be an academic. Um, and so I started writing my PhD and researching and thinking about my, my PhD dissertation um, with the idea that I want to communicate that China is not, as I'd imagined it before I got there, rice paddies and big, large-brimmed straw hats with people who are um, 
really different and don't and don't welcome people. So I, I I wrote it as a book for everybody to be able to read. Where, where, um, that, that kind of unwelcoming, uh, I suppose, vibe that you got from China as a, uh, a kind of the image that you'd received uh, earlier in your life. What, do you think that's a, a widespread view in, in Australia, or, or it, I mean, it, it, is that how you see uh, the kind of Western view of China stereotypically? I have no idea, um, really. Uh, I I certainly didn't get it from my parents. I mean, my parents are well are well travelled and. Um, it, it's sort of I don't really know where that came from and I'd been travelling around Southeast Asia and I was felt very at home in the Philippines Indonesia um, etc so I've, I really don't know where that came from um, I think part of it was the language I couldn't uh, the language was so alien and the script was so alien so um, I take in a lot of things through my eyes I learn a lot of things through my eyes and so um Walking around a place, a streetscape or any sort of scape, that where the language I can't sound out, I can't look at it and sound it out, um, was um, quite alienating. Mm, mm. Well, and, and then, that's the, yeah. also the attraction. Sure, of course, yeah, and, and it sounds like you, uh, uh, I guess, c- confronted that that issue in yourself head on by uh, engaging in it in a more deep way by by taking it up in your academic studies um and then how did that proceed through your through your phd and, and ultimately lead you to writing this book uh, oil and water well my supervisor is a quite a hands-off man andrew kipnis uh, he he didn't he didn't push me in any way but one thing he did do in the first months he made me read a couple of books on colonialism which i said i i, I wrote very bad reviews off for him and um and because uh, i was anti this uh, assumption, you know, making this prior assumption that Xinjiang represents a colonial situation. Um, so he read me. He told me to read these two books uh, or a few books on culture and colonialism, and I I read those. And then which which, which books in particular? One's called Colonialism's Culture, and the other one is called Colonialism and Culture. <laughs> I see. Right. Well, uh, um, yeah. and and uh, they're both by a person called Nicholas, and they're both by different people called Nicholas. And um, one's Dirks D I R K S, and the other one is Thomas. And I've just forgotten which one's which because obviously the names of the people are so close, and the names of the books are so close. But anyway, Dirks and Thomas, um, hmm. colonialism's culture and colonialism and culture. I see. Uh, yeah, and they're, they're great books. Um, so. Then, after being in Xinjiang for 14 months, my first field work came back and I just could not but accept that, in fact, Xinjiang does represent a colonial situation. Um, And so, that sort of framed my, um, you know, not the books, framed my my perspective and what I wrote, um, but in fact, my experience of observing it for 14 months framed it. Hmm, I see, I see. And and was then the PhD on this subject and that then built into the book? That's right, yeah. I, I mean, I basically wrote my PhD to try and make it into a uh, – make it as a book. So, I so I, I less of the I am arguing and, mm, and more of mm. the this is what's going on. This is what I see. Mm. 
That makes a lot of sense. And uh, well, that's that's very interesting to hear how that kind of came up through your academic formation and, and supervision by Andrew Kipnis too, uh, who uh, was in fact the last person I interviewed for this podcast. So I point listeners in the direction of uh, of a few podcasts back on the East Asian uh, Studies uh, podcast from the New Books Network uh, to listen to that, which I think is a very good complement to uh, to this uh, book too. Um, so well, that's great. Having kind of got a sense of uh, where the book come from, I think we should probably dive right into it and see how this perception that you had of, of the place as a colonial situation evolved uh, in a, uh, an intellectual uh, way. Um, Caller, where you spent a lot of your time and the kind of main field site for the project as a whole, uh, sounds like a pretty fascinating and, uh, and, and uh, unique kind of a place in this region. Perhaps you could begin by describing uh what sort of a place it is? You say it's a palimpsest of post-1949 settlements by Han Chinese people. So what are the layers of that palimpsest? What, what kind of a place is the city? And, and uh, how is it a good place to look at Han life at Xinjiang and China as a whole? Okay, yeah. Well, so the first thing, the layers of the palimpsest, there's two main layers. And that is, one is the Xinjiang construct, uh, production and construction core, which is otherwise known as the Bintuan. Um and the other, the, that's the first one. And then the other one is the oil company. So these are the two main era-defining institutions. In between those uh, and overlapping with them, uh, there's also things like the, the fourth transport company. Um, and all of these state-run, state-managed, state-owned institutions um, are important for the development of Xinjiang and the way it's been structured. So first, the Bingtuan. Before... The Bingtuan got there in 1950, led by Wang Zhen. Um, Kola was a very small little town, nothing much there. It had been a, a way station, like a postal station, because it, it sits at a, a particularly sort of what's considered to be a strategic pass and, and also at a cross uh, crossroads where the, the road diverges. You either go um, directly south and around the, the basin, the south basin of, of uh, Xinjiang, the Taran Basin, or you go west and then uh, south towards Kashgar, around the top. Um, and Kola sits at that place. And so transport was important. And the Bingtuan was important because they they like to occupy these sort of key areas. Um, so he, he put in a lot of irrigation. Him and his, his workers put in a lot of irrigation. Um, and that's the first sort of state institution that got there, along with the, the government. It moved – the government was originally – Further away, it was up in Yanchi. Um, then it moved to where the uh, caller is now. Um, then these transport companies came along and other things, but mainly the transport company was a, bi- a big one, and that brought it a lot. At that time, there was this fantastic, um, well, what I consider a very fascinating um, thing, where each key node through Xinjiang had its own transport companies. So if you got uh, goods coming from inland China um, to Kashgar, it would have to be transferred, say, it would go to Tulufan, Turpan, and then it would be loaded off those trucks and onto Tulufan co- transport company trucks and then down to Kola and then onto Kola transport company trucks and then down to, I think it was um, Aksu or somewhere um, and then and then next and all the way to, to Kashgar. This is like a a divvying up of the the rights to make money out of that. Mm-hmm. So those institutions were important. When when that was 
um, broken down when that when that rule that it has to be carried through your territory by your trucks um, was stopped. Obviously, the fourth transport company declined, but by that time, it already had lots of trucks and and lots of employees. So that was like the second um, institution. And then the oil company came along to sort of the demise of the um, it in the late eighties. Um, it rose up like by the mid mid eighties. It sort of began um, at the demise. At the same time, the, the the fourth transport company demised. So those are the key institutions. I see, and each and each each brought with it uh, a distinct cohort of Han Chinese settlers from from Inner China, as you say, from Nadi. Um, well, where where were those people coming from, and what were the circumstances under which they arrived in this place? Well, the distinct cohort for the the Bingtuan was the original demobilized soldiers from uh, both the PLA and the GMD, the the, the uh, Guomindang, who had surrendered, or or in fact um, they'd surrendered, but they were calling it a mutiny um, against the GMD, and then they joined the PLA, and then they got sent down to call it. it there was not a lot of the ones in in Kola, um were uh, were PLA. There was a few, there was fewer GMD. GMD those troops got sent to other places more than Kola relatively. Um, but but they so they made up the first group, and then afterwards those people were joined by Shanghai sent down youth, um, uh, and they were also joined by a couple of waves of. Uh, women who were supposed to marry those people. So this is a very interesting story and one which is not taken up in my book, um, but it's certainly one that is worth writing about. Um, mm. And uh, it, you know these these mendos overall in Xinjiang there was let's say one hundred and fifty thousand men, most of them without wives, most of them well past the normal marriageable age and very keen to get married because you know really all they want. Is, is to have a settled life. They've been fighting a war for all of their adult lives. And um, and Wang Zhen saw this situation and he said, well, the, what we need in order to have stability here, we need stability among these Bingtuan people. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, really, that's really the key thing. It, it's, it's more key than, than stability among the um, Uyghurs and other types of people. What we need is stability among our people. And, and amongst that, those early cohorts of demobilized Civil War soldiers, you say that there was some distinction between where uh, former uh, PLA combatants and, and Guomindang fighters were sent. Was there remaining sort of distinctions, uh, social distinctions and grievances, I guess, that lasted on from that Civil War conflict that persisted even amongst Bingtuan settlers, or was that all sort of forgotten quite quickly? What's your impression of of, of, of the you know the cleavage that really you know split China in two for decades? Um, how did that did that persist beyond the the fifties? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, there's certainly been uh, somebody, Amy Cardos, who's argued that that's a very distinct um, thing, and that the GMD soldiers were discriminated against. Um, and I've spoken with people who've said that, but I've also I also know plenty of people who were the descendants or are the descendants of GMD soldiers, and they're very well off. Co- colleagues of mine in the oil company 
were were like that. So I don't think it's uniform. You can't make a uh, an argument that says, "Oh yes, the GMD were always discriminated against." No, they were not. Um, it's very contextual and place specific. Um, if they perhaps if there was stress in the environment. I'm just speculating here. If there was a lot of stress in the environment, there wasn't enough to go around, or if they needed internal enemies for some reason, then the GMD would probably people would probably be more up for that than the PLA people. I see. I see. Yeah, I was I was surprised. Um, I studied in Urumqi for a while, and one of my teachers was a Guomindang descendant. Very happy to talk about that fact. It seemed very striking having spent some time in uh, in in a china where that wasn't seemed to didn't seem to feature quite so much um that that that, that was a feature of xinjiang life so that's, that's interesting to hear about um and then that later period of settlement with the oil company and so on was that uh, what kind of people were brought in uh, at, that, at that time how did how did they differ from say the early uh, demobilized soldiers and then the yeah. sent down youth yeah the sent down youth I, I, I should add there's another thing in there's the third front factories um, so they were totally relocated from from China on block. Um, mm. But yeah, let's get to the oil company. The the oil company people they were they were taken from the oil companies in in Xinjiang already. So there was two at that time. There was one uh, near Hami, or, um, and then when there was the, the main one where the headquarters was based up in Karamai. Um, and so people would uh, volunteer. Basically, they they'd say, "Okay, yes, I will be willing to go down to Tarim, um, where the conditions were pretty harsh uh, down in Tarim at that time, and and so it wasn't a favoured uh, posting." And there was also people in Daqing. Daqing at that time was reaching a, a production decline, and um, or actually, it already reached a production decline. It was overpopulated, so they they sent people from Shengli which is in Shandong, and they uh, sent people from Daqing. Um, and people could volunteer to go there or just sort of you have to do a rotation, three years. And then if you like it enough, can bear it enough, then you can choose to stay there. They were, they were quite desperate for people. But by the time the mid-late 80s came along, they were producing quite well and all the other oil uh, companies, the the local oil companies, were in decline, more or less. So, Tarim became more and more attractive. So, there was people who saw the writing on the wall more quickly and volunteered to go to Tarim. And and as it was, you know, that was a good decision. Mm, mm. No, that makes uh, that makes sense. Actually, that that brings up an issue which I think uh, is one very widely uh, discussed, but perhaps not always particularly well understood with regard to Han settlements in Xinjiang over voluntarism versus coercion or incentivization uh, from the center. Um, is it the case that the picture has changed over time in terms of the proportion of people being strongly encouraged slash forced to resettle? Or uh, is it always the case that there's been a mix of both voluntary and and, and sort of, uh, yeah, persuaded migrants? Um Certainly, in in Western media portrayals, the idea that Chinese people, Han Chinese people, have been put in Xinjiang is the picture that is often painted. But uh, could you say something about how that picture unfolds, uh, both temporary so over time and and at any given moment? Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting question, and and it's there's always been some voluntary, um, although in the first 
in the you know, early 1950s that there was probably not very much of that. Um, but by the time the the Great Leap Famine was um, hitting, uh, places like Gansu, there was lots of people thinking, where can I go? I can go to Xinjiang. So there's a story in my book about one lady who was born um, and she's a girl, obviously, um, and her father was so upset that he chucked her out the door in the middle of winter and she got picked up by the neighbours and then she got raised as an adopted child and married uh, in an arranged marriage to a man who'd already had a, a wife um, and she died and, and then he was old and abusive and then she gave birth to three children and then she ran away in the middle of the famine. Um, just after the ma- old man died, he was too weak to survive the famine. So she ran away to, to Xinjiang, um, arranged by her uh, some relative, like a, a, her sister was married to, or maybe her brother knew a comrade in, in Xinjiang who'd been, who was a GMD soldier. And so then they said, okay, come to Xinjiang and, and be one of the wives we need in order to secure this place. Um, and so she came, she went to Xinjiang in 1960 or 61. So that's one element of the voluntary. It's, it's, it's pushed in some way because it's, you know, she's running away. She has to survive. But mm. at the same time, it's a voluntary thing. Uh, the state wasn't saying, come out here, we'll give you this, this, this. Although they were doing that at the same time. They were doing that before and after that um, mm. because they still needed women. And then, um, in more recent times, especially after reform and opening up, you know, there was a lot of the go west young Han or, um, <laughs> type thing. Um, uh, and, and even Wang and Mao made a, made a plea to people. You know, this is where Xinjiang is a place where, uh, you know, people who are involved in constructing can make the best of themselves. He said, you know, you, that's where it's, so it's really the, the rhetoric um, and the, the 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 sort of advertising is was very similar to that of the sort of American West, the idea that the frontier is a place where you can uh, find uh, you can make a, a go of it, I and see, also be liberated in some way. Mm-hmm. The people, some people chose to go to Xinjiang, like say, for example, as a, sorry for butting in there, um, there was one instance of a man who. Um, was a Korean War vet, and in the late 1950s, he um, had a chance to go to to various different places. He could have gone to some good, solid old oil fields. He was told to go into the oil company, and he, because he was a a, uh, a ranking officer, he could have gone to Shengli or somewhere else. But because his family and he, if he'd gone to Shengli, he would have had a decent a decent wage and, and pension, etc. But he was too close, it would have been too close to his family. And then his family would want stuff off him. So he decided to go as far as he could all the way out to Xinjiang so his family wouldn't come asking him for material goods. Um, and he came out. He went out to, to Karamai. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's, that's really interesting. And I guess the, the kind of broad contours of the picture then is that there's a pretty uh, sliding spectrum between say coercion and voluntarism and uh, i guess these are issues that will come up later in the 
uh, in the book when we talk about some of the structures and the ideas of agency and and quite how it is that uh, the settlers have forged lives there. Um, but you mentioned the uh, American West there, and that's a pretty good transition onto the kind of conceptual frame within which uh, you propose we can understand this overall situation um, in terms of uh, ideas like colonization and empire and indeed the frontier. Um, so could you perhaps now uh, su- 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 say a little more about how it was that your initial impressions of the place as as a colony, as, a, as, a, as an imperial uh, kind of um, situation um, emerge in the book as, itself and how you kind of pin these conceptual anchors uh, into into your material. Right, so in the book, um, I have three core themes, uh, organising principles in my mind in, in a sense, because the book is like a series of vertical orientations. The, the, the core chapters of the book are vertically oriented life stories, but it, within any life story, there's these cross-cutting thematic elements which are which are similar or resonate with one another. So it's like a weave and weft, uh, warp and weft on on, on in weaving, mm. uh, vertically oriented and horizontally. The horizontally oriented things are these themes. So migration relates to how people got to where they are. That's not just physically. That's also you know through yeah, their social growth social state growth of social status empire relates to the uh relationship between the core and the periphery um and time how do i summarize that time relates to i mean the sense of settler time or the sense of uh how it is perceived that the frontier is perhaps somewhere that is both in advance of and also hanging back from the centre? Is, is, are these these sort of ideas uh, central to your understanding? Of That's right. Sorry. Yeah, thank you for filling in there. That's the behind and ahead um, thing. Uh, so, yeah, I when I was walking around, uh, just, yeah, I spent a lot of time walking around um, and cycling around and photographing. And so when... I was seeing Xinjiang and talking about that place with people and they're talking about that or just offering their opinion on things. The overriding state and popular discourse is that Xinjiang is behind. But at the same time, there was all this sort of experimentation going on. And of course, I'd read James Millwood's book um, where he talks about this and I'd been interested in frontiers and I read uh, some some literature on frontiers and and the key thing that I took from that is that the frontier is a place of uh, experimentation. It's a laboratory. It's a laboratory for institutions and policies, but it's also a laboratory for people sort of in in the Russian uh, Central Asian context for people to work out who they are. And um, so this was, this was interesting to me because Linzer Xu, for let's take an example of of, of uh, from Chinese history, where Linzer Xu, who was the commissioner in the Opium War, got sent out to Xinjiang after the first Opium War began, when when well, actually after after it ended, um, because he had not handled the British correctly, according to the Qing uh, Center. So he sent out there as exile, right? So that's 
brings up another play, another thing but about the frontier, which is both exile and liberation. He went out there, like so many poets and other people before and after him, who were exiled but but not criminals, um, sent out there, and they have sort of revelations. So, to come back to this place, uh, to this idea of the frontier as a place of innovation, um, and I saw these innovative things and, and one of the innovative things I saw because I was in the center of it working as a, a teacher at the oil company was the oil company and which the way in which they construct that institution um, the way that they actually are able to make new new institutions whereas in the center in the core area it might not have been possible to to make a new institution like that hmm. um, maybe Politically, it might not have been possible, or socio-politically, it, it certainly wouldn't have been easy because there wasn't any new oil fields. Whereas in in Xinjiang, you have a blank slate. Mm. You know, this idea of a blank slate, and that and and regardless of whether it is actually a blank slate, the fact that it's seen as a blank slate um, enables these new new things to come up. And that that particular example draws attention to, uh, I suppose, one question that might arise when we're comparing broads. Uh, I guess, abstracted frontier or uh, imperial scenarios, um, namely that around whether there's a significant difference between the frontier of a centralised state socialist country like the People's Republic of China or indeed the Soviet Union, as you mentioned, trying to reforge humanity in a in a sort of Promethean, top-down kind of a way, and that of a uh, you know your archetypal American or, or indeed perhaps Australian frontier uh, coming from a from a at least a non uh, non twentieth century socialist situation. Do you see key differences there in terms of the kind of innovations that are possible, or uh, the way that the frontier takes shape uh, when the centre is a socialist, uh, top down sort of a centre in this way? Um. Okay. There, yeah, there are differences, but my, I think the the fir, my first point would be that the similarities are more than the differences. Mm. So there's more similarities. Now, what are the differences, and why do they come up? Um, the differences would be that within the case of China, China versus the Australia Britain relationship. These are the two things which I'm most familiar with. Um, or the Britain, India, Britain, wherever, you know, uh, Dutch East Indies and, and, the, and, the, and the Dutch. That, that sort of classic European imperialism and then now Australia, Britain, and then uh, history of China and its relationship with Xinjiang. Um, and the, cent- you know, the, the, the switch is that China in the early 20th century, made this switch from being self-identified as a, an empire to being self-identified as a nation-state. And so the key thing about that is that empires can tolerate, to some degree, to a much larger degree, this, this uh, thinning of their cultural authority and cultural consistency towards the edge of the empire. By definition, empire includes all these people who are different. Um, and so it's okay to have, you know, like almost a blurred a blurred boundary. Some empires 
were like that. They didn't. They didn't actually have a boundary. You know, it's really indistinct where the boundary is. Whereas a nation state is a very clear boundary, right down to the centimetre almost. Um, and and the culture, not just the political authority, but the culture somehow is supposed to go up to that boundary, and then it makes a very di- distinct switch into the next boundary. Now, that's obviously not true, but um, that's how it's sort of desired and seen. So um, those are that's the distinction. But um, China is still, in many ways, an empire because it includes all these different people. But it wants to be a nation state. It has it wants to to um, make things more homogenous and more normal in its core terms. Right, and this this is precisely the next uh, the next subject I was going to move on to, which is uh, this idea of of normalization, which you bring out um, a, a kind of key conceit uh, in 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 the book and a way of discussing the processes uh, ongoing uh, in, in Kuala and Xinjiang as a whole. Um, where, what, what is this idea of normalization? Where, where does it come from and how does it manifest itself in, in today's Xinjiang? In today's Xinjiang, it's, it's horrendous. It's, it's um, unforgiving, um, extreme normalization. Uh, it, I mean, because now in today's Xinjiang, there are these, they're called transformation education centers. Um, and sometimes they even have concentration on the front of that. In the Chinese, concentration transfer, uh, transformation education centers or education transformation centers. Um, but basically they're concentration camps for re-education and recalibration of Islamic people Uyghurs primarily, to Han norms and ways of life. Um, and so this is the extreme intolerance. Is these, these things represent the, the high level, a high point probably in history of the intolerance of the core of their periphery. Um, because... And, and so, so that's that's what's going on at the moment. Now, my idea about normalization is that it normalization aims to make Xinjiang and people in Xinjiang more like Nadi, the the core area, and people in in the core area. And what I brought to that was that it's not just about making Uyghurs in that way; it's about making Han in that way. Obviously, Uyghurs and Han are treated differently in this normalization. But Han are also subjects of normalization in my view and in my – that's what I've seen. Um, they, they are also seen as not people of the core. They're, they're, they're from the core. And they actually don't see themselves as people of the core. Most Han in Xinjiang who are the, the subjects by definition who I'm talking about, to and about are Han Xinjiang people. Xinjiang Han, uh, they call themselves Xinjiang people, um, and and so th- there's this distinction between what Han in, in Xinjiang call themselves, we are Xinjiang people, Xinjiang Ran, and um, and when people in in the core area of China and the, the predominantly Han areas, culturally Han areas of, of China, when they talk about Xinjiang Ran, they talk about Xinjiang people, they mean Uyghurs, generally. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, and and so, uh, you know, when a, a Xinjiang 
Han goes to to the core area of China since the last since 2009 anyway at least they'll have a problem that, that even if they're a Han person it's on their uh, identity card checking into a hotel can sometimes be difficult it's not uh, only Uyghurs who are um who are discriminated against in that way that's yeah that's that's very interesting and, and I think uh, something that is palpably present across China um, as you mentioned, I mean, you, you explain uh, very clearly that the Uyghurs are a central part of your ethnography of Han life uh, in China. And, and I think you've just brought out, uh, oh, sorry, I should say Han life in Xinjiang. And you've just brought out some of the complex interplays that exist there. Um, but obviously what is striking too is that, and, and I think this emerges as much as anything in our conversation so far, which uh, has, has only now got onto the theme of the other uh, around half of the population of Xinjiang is that these these worlds can exist in pretty separate ways, uh, and and the extent of contact with your uh, between your interlocutors in Kaula and the Uyghurs uh, at, in southern Xinjiang at large uh, was uh, extremely low um, by by the sounds of uh, what you the, the, by the by the picture that you paint in in the book. Um, so. Perhaps we could just move on, uh, and we've discussed a lot of, I think, the key issues already, but we could move on perhaps to talking about some of the chapters in particular. Um, And especially, again, a point you've hinted at already, this idea of construction and who the constructors are and how the Han uh, are encouraged to be, uh, to embody this constructor uh, role and and play a a part in making civilization on the frontier. Um, Who are the constructors and how does... Uh, looking at them in this way, how does taking the portrayal of constructors by the centre seriously help us understand uh, their place and 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 some of the uh, situations in Han society in Kuala? Well, ultimately, this idea of constructor is is something that you know. If you're a constructor, you are putting your full energies into constructing Xinjiang, and that means you know changing culturally, changing Xinjiang, and and uh, building stuff, building um, physical things, but also building uh, a consistency, building a new culture there. Um, and it's like so many things in Chinese political discourse and life that you have to put your whole heart into it. And your heart in China, of course, means your mind. You mean, in Western uh psychology and, and philosophy we think about the mind as driving things and the Chinese think about the heart so um, so when you're putting your heart into it that means you're putting your full mental emotional and physical self and um, and so you can't just go there and build stuff and get your wage because it's not about just building stuff um, you have to be you know fully committed to this great project of nation building. Um, that's what a constructor is in the in the state description and, and in the description of people who take on the state and embody that um, and then try to impress that and on other people and use that to make distinctions between the Han who are constructors and the people who are not constructors because they're just there to make money, for example. Um, and then they might go back to their their home in in uh, eastern China or central China. Mm. So that's the the sort of definition. Now, um, along with that, is explicitly or implicitly, uh, and often explicitly, a notion of sacrifice. 
you uh, when you're putting yourself into everything um it, it doesn't matter if you're not getting because you're so committed to it, it doesn't matter if you're not getting back what you expect you know because you're expected to be committed to the project um and that and that's been the bing tuan experience um because these people you know there were there soldiers that were under command um and then they were demobilized but they were still under command because it was a military government and then they were still under command even when the military government finished because they were in a bing tuan which is a quasi military organization for its first part of its life um and so sacrifice is expected of these constructors and it's very useful of course for the state to have people who are expected to be sacrificing for the state um so it's it's a useful one to for, you know it, it continues it's also useful for institutions if institutions say Look, we are constructors then we can claim rewards on the basis of that the bing twins are classic they're always saying you know we we're, we're the constructors um and therefore we should be treated well and this even came up after 2009 among individuals um and collectively han people in xinjiang they're saying you know collectively the the han mainstream is the ordinary han people who are not the, the necessarily the political elite they're certainly not the sojourning migrant workers um they have sacrificed they have they're out there on the frontier sacrificing themselves um by living there by reproducing there you know, it's very important um that han people are settled there and reproducing there that is what is the basis of the claim the central claim to xinjiang if they just had military there or people just sojourning doing work their claim is weakened greatly almost mm. uh, uh almost fatally mm. but if there's people there re- reproducing and saying yeah we are the heart of xinjiang xinjiang is our place we are xinjiang people that is the most solid claim that the the core political the core, political core of china can make to xinjiang mm. so after mm. 2009 that's what they're leveraging that's what the people in in uh, xinjiang the han people in xinjiang are leveraging to say to the central government look get it together we we here have uh, been sacrificing ourselves for 60 years um and uh suffering and you've reduced our bursaries and extra things that used to be because we were on the you know like these uh, hardship posting um uh bonuses um and and so now it's time to to reup those things you know take some notice of us otherwise mm. it's going to descend into chaos mm-hmm. no that that's uh, really uh Uh, seems a key key dimension of of the larger scale processes unfolding there and uh you elaborate more in the book and I should point listeners uh in that direction uh that you have some really rich uh sort of ethnographic and, and 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 narrative observations of how some of the distinctions are made and maintained and argued about debated over among different cohorts of han arrivals sojourning workers longer term residents and so on so that uh comes through in particularly uh, rich fashion um in this early early chapter um perhaps we can move on uh to one of the era defining institutions you mentioned we've already talked a bit about bit about the bingtuan in the introduction um but perhaps you can now say more about the oil company which obviously 
was where you were sort of lodged uh, as as a teacher and and where I guess it's an institution which many of your interlocutors had a direct connection to. Um, how does looking at uh, Tajir, the, the the term uh, oilfield company and caller, um, help us understand some of these processes of of construction uh, and particularly broader pictures of the frontier? You say some very interesting things about how the, the institution itself is both an innovator and a socialist remnant, a sort of a neo-Damway, you put it. Um, could you describe a bit more about the company and uh, its role in embodying this kind of frontier uh, ethos? Okay, I'll start with the, the specific uh, question about the innovator and the neo-Danway. So the, the corporate structure of Taja is different to all of the other companies, uh, oil companies in China. Um, it has a much lower permanent workforce to whom it is committed with, uh, you know, to, to provide salaries and things for. So they have only 10,000 permanent workforce. And then they have all these other contract and non-permanent um, employees. And although they still... An interesting resonance here, just as an aside, is that they still do provide employment for their workers' wives because most of their workers are men because they're technical staff and men tend to study technical stuff more. Um, and, and almost all of their workers are Han, is that correct? Yes. Um, the exception to that is that the oil company land was previously mostly occupied by Uyghurs on the non-Bingtuan side of, of Kola City. So it was, it was a county. Um, and the Bingtuan was on one side of the river. And the third, uh, the fourth transport company is on, others, uh, on that side of the river as well. And the center of the town is on that side. But then this new place, Kola, um, offered that to the oil company and outbid Aksu for that, um, for the right to have that oil company there. And then they said, okay, so you can have this plot of land. And when the the Bintuan want when the oil company wanted to expand, there was another bit of land which there was also Uyghur farmers on, and they said to those Uyghur farmers, "Okay, you can have um, some money in compensation, and one of your children can have a job in the oil company." By that time, the oil company was a good place to work, so that was a good deal, and um, and so those are the sort of very few Uyghur employees of the oil company. Otherwise, they're all directly taken from um, the top oil company training institutions in uh, central eastern China. Mm. Yeah, so um, the innovation, the key innovation is the company structure, the low amount of staff um, and using technical, uh, like using technology to um, to reduce the staff burden. Um, and and because they they have that low amount of staff, um, and they have gas is quite profitable. Although it's debatable whether their petroleum, their oil extraction is is profitable. I've heard a, a couple of different stories. Some people say yes, we're making money out of that, and some people say no, we're not making money out of that. It's it's way too far down. It's very difficult um, geographical formations underneath the the middle of the desert where they get it out from. Um, and so they're not making money on that. Either way, they're definitely profitable overall, um, and they pass that on to their workers uh, in in 
those classic sort of innovative ways. Like they're only allowed to pay them a certain amount for for a, for a pension, according to the local rules. But they do other things by they get a sort of in-house pension uh, system get to get around the rules. So that's sort of some the innovations. Now the the persistence is these things like they they will give uh, workers wives um, jobs. You know, because they still need the workers to be there and they're men, like I say. And so when a man gets married, his his wife, uh, whoever he marries, um, will get a job in the oil company. And that will be, if she's skilled, she'll get a job appropriate to that skill level. But it's likely she's not skilled. Um, she might be have been a waiter, a waitress beforehand. Um, in fact, in one interesting little aside, there's... Um, a sort of minor industry in organising jobs for illegible, um, relatively attractive women to be waitresses in places where oil company, like in oil company hotels, to meet the young men who have just come in from from their um, study and have just been employed by the oil company and can um, then matchmake, you know, because they see these girls every day, they're serving them, and then they get married, and the, oil, the girl has a, a life in the oil company. So um, that's one way it's a neo-down way. But also the the very, you know, uh, Andrew Walder's uh, structure of hierarchy. So you, you have to have those connections. You have to be inside the oil company. You have to be a full worker in order to get the, the, uh, the benefits and so it, it, in some way, resonates with Andrew Walder's uh, description of the the neo traditionalism. Mm-hmm. That's uh, yeah, that's that's, that's fascinating uh, to hear that kind of rich and nuanced picture drawn out uh, through the life stories that you uh, recount in your uh, in, in the book. Um, the the way that Danway and and sort of socialist logics. Uh, coexist with with some of these innovative things um and i think it brings out in very uh, in, in in very compelling ways the frontier uh, operation of a lot of this stuff uh, as well as we should say the highly gendered way that things continue to operate in the company which given what we know of historic frontiers elsewhere uh, is a feature of, of many of those too the, the very masculinist uh, ethos that drives the idea of pushing out and and forging a new path um and then sort of the idea that um women come uh behind to sort of support uh things once uh, as things are getting established um and we perhaps don't have time to get into real depth uh on these subjects now but chapters five and six of the book uh discuss a little more the uh the, the relationships the the guanxi that um operate within the company and, and, and outside the company and help us to understand some of the distinctions between variant uh, generations and, 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 and professions among hand settlers um, and also variant relationships with the centre and how they play a role in marriage choices and uh, people wanting to marry people with uh, stronger company and, and social safety net connections. Um, all of that is described in very rich detail in, in, in chapters five and six, but I'll point listeners in that direction perhaps to look into it for themselves uh, because uh, we, we perhaps don't have time to go into it fully here. Um, however, uh, having discussed a little more this kind of broad frontier picture and, and a theme running throughout our conversation today, um, perhaps we could just move on to the very final part of the book, the last chapter seven, the partnership of stability in Xinjiang and your conclusion. Um, 
concerning what it is that, uh, I suppose the most compelling question here is what it is that the Chinese state is trying to do in Xinjiang. Um, you talk about, we've talked already today about normalization, about the process of settlement and forging a constructor ethos and uh, attempting to make an empire into a nation state, if you like. But you have some pretty interesting things to say about the actual project uh, of uh, the Chinese state in Xinjiang and what it is that the center is trying to achieve there. Uh, could you perhaps go into this a little more? Okay, so I mean, basically, um, I've been asking myself this question, um, what is the Chinese state trying to achieve there? Um, and they're always talking about you know, integration. Um, and I think, uh, and then I, I, I changed that word integration into normalization, as we discussed before, to make Xinjiang more like the core area. Um, and so the, the paradox or the contradiction of, of this whole project, which I bring up uh, from the, in the book through, from beginning to end, is that first of all, you have a situation where it's uh, the the state is is trying to make a cultural periphery more like the cultural core, um, and and it is about culture as we flagged at the beginning. It's it's not about their political power or ec- economy or anything like that. So by culture, we're referring to uh, religion, to Islam, to everyday practices what what is it that exactly you're you're gesturing at there with that broad term culture all all of those things um uh islam not necessarily being the most important i wouldn't say i think it's more like everyday practices and assumptions and particularly it's come out um since i i published the book um and it's become increasingly clear to me that it's about structures uh, assumptions of the hierarchy or systems of cultural authority. And so um, who who pays tribute to whom? Um, and I'm starting to see it in, in family terms, to be honest. It, it's, uh, it's now, instead of the Uyghurs can be their own family, you know, so we're an empire um, and there's the Han family and then there's all these other different families and the Uyghurs are one of them. Now Uyghurs cannot be a different family. They have to be part of the Chinese family. And um, and the Chinese family in this case increasingly means the Han family. So that's the that's the really, really unforgiving normalization that I'm talking about. They instead of the Uyghurs having their own patriarchal structures and with with God the ultimate the, at the apex, now they must have the 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 current um, Han patriarchal structures with the party and Xi Jinping at the apex, um, because lineages in China um, and uh, and uh, structures of authority in China have always gone through, uh, in many cases, gone through lineages at the grassroots up through up to the emperor or the the head of state at the apex um and and ancestor worship is incorporated into that it's one one whole thing even if it's very diverse um and but Uyghurs always ended in god 
now God is the Communist Party. I've been in China so many times recently where people are not talking about believing in the party, uh, sorry, be- believing the party, right? So they're, they're saying that we can trust the party, we believe the party. They're mm-hmm. talking about believing in the party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um, the party has sort of become God and, and that's what is is trying, you know, they're trying to do in Xinjiang is make Uyghurs God the party instead of Allah. Um, that's how I see it. Um, and that goes through the family. It, it, it's The family is essential in that. So the urbanization of Kola, for example, um, and the breaking down of these Uyghur ways of living in space, where you've got extended households in, in adobe dwellings um, and doing agriculture, small-scale agriculture, doing small-scale trading, etc., and then putting them in all apartment buildings. That's the first step to break down those family structures, those family social and economic structures. Um, and the concentration camps that we're talking about is a more direct muscular way of, of doing that same with going towards the same end. Hmm. Um, now, there's another thing which is related to your question, which is about integration and, and the, the whole process of normalization. And that is that um, because the culture is always going to be different, there's always this churning of culture on the on the frontier uh, the the full integration of the frontier is impossible it, it can never be it can, it's it's a it's a it's a destination which can never be reached and then in the final um the final the conclusion in the last page last pages actually i i make the point that that is not only impossible it's also undesirable from the cause point of view, even though they're constantly saying we want to, you know, develop Xinjiang, um, culturally develop Xinjiang, which makes means making it more normal, um, and and economically develop it, etc., um, integrate Xinjiang in, in in the classic political science way, um, they can't, and it wouldn't be good for the core because the core is um, always wants to be a core. And in order for it to be a core and for it to be the center of light and, and the high point in the nation state or empire of culture, it has to have a lower point. It has to be somewhere that's lower. And and so the core and the periphery always exist in relation to one another. If you don't have a periphery that's lower, you can't have a core that's higher. And so it's undesirable for the core, even though the core is constantly pushing towards this integration. So this is this constant tension and paradox. Well, I think you make that point very persuasively throughout the whole book. Um, obviously, we could go on talk about it for a lot longer because the implications of it are profound, wide-ranging, and one has to say pretty harrowing uh, for the future of, uh, of, of this place. Um, but I think, uh, unfortunately, we may have to draw it to a close here. We've already taken up a fair bit of your time. Um, so before we go, uh, perhaps I could just ask you, our traditional question, uh, what is it that you're working on now? How have you moved on from your uh, your work in Xinjiang and, and what sort of projects have you got on the go at present? Well, for five years or so, I've had one on petitioners, old lady petitioners, and this is related to those old women who moved out to, um, to Xinjiang um, uh, who were wives. And I'm, I'm studying the same sort of people both in Xinjiang and in the Northeast. And I'm hoping to look at the similar people 
in other places around China, like Inner Mongolia. But this is a long-term social history type project um, that I'm trying to do before, to be honest, all these people um, pass away. Um, and so that's one long-term one. The, the, my main current one is um, is on non-state welfare. And so it's about non-state, it's about entrepreneurs, factory-owning entrepreneurs who have only small family businesses in rural China, in the east side of rural China, setting up either lineage-based or village-based um, welfare funds to serve the or the old people or the students. So it's about um, education and filial piety, <coughs> um, both which are long-term concerns of of uh, lineage organizations uh, through history. Um, but this is a new form because it's, I'm, I'm studying this from the perspective of social control um, and how these things are being uh, encouraged and then innovating themselves. So they're going, have a giving space to, to innovate and then innovating in different forms, slightly different forms, um, and then being shaped by state actions. So I'm, I'm studying the negotiation of that shaping and how those organizations are either uh, presenting a, a different power structure, creating different power structures at the grassroots in China, or being melded successfully by state operators into new ways of exerting power at the, at the grassroots, uh, state power at the grassroots in, in rural China. Mm. Well, that's, uh, that sounds fascinating. It sounds like a lot of cognate and related themes uh, from your previous work will, will emerge there too. And I think uh, we'll look forward to reading some of the results of that as it will, I think, complement greatly the insight into the system as a whole uh, and indeed some of the more uh, grassroots and, and uh, the ways it operates on the ground. Um, so that's great. Thanks for telling us about that. And thank you very much for appearing today. Um, it was Brilliant talking to you, and, and the book is fantastic. Uh, thanks a lot, Tom. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Ed. And listeners, uh, thank you very much, as always, for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. I would urge you to go out and get a copy of this book. We haven't been able to cover everything in it today, but it deals with a subject which uh, I don't think other interviewees will mind my saying uh, is of a real urgency and uh, uh, vital that that we understand as much about this as possible and try and uh, try and uh, adapt our our thinking about the situation accordingly. Um, so yes, thank you for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies a podcast on the New Books Network, and I will speak to you next time.